Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. I want to continue discussing Matthew's use of Old Testament prophecy. This is something that we're going to do continually as we go through this gospel, but specifically in the first two chapters of Matthew, we've actually seen five different places where he has cited Old Testament scriptures as being fulfilled in just the birth narrative of Jesus. And in the last video, we talked about the first three of those instances, right? We talked about Jesus being born of a virgin, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, and Jesus being delivered from Egypt, which are respectively from Isaiah, Micah, and Hosea. But what I want to do in today's video is I want to look at the last two prophetic citations that Matthew gives in chapters 1 and 2, and I want to talk about the weeping that is heard in Ramah, and then, this is probably the more complicated one that we're going to have to spend a lot of time wrestling through, Jesus being called a Nazarene. Uh, really, this fifth one is actually the most one of the most complicated elements of the entire Gospel of Matthew, and hopefully by the end of this video I'll be able to shed some light and some understanding on that. And so I'm really excited what we got to cover today. And just so you know why we're doing this, a lot of people will approach the prophetic elements of Matthew and they'll say that he is misusing the Old Testament scriptures when he quotes them. Whereas I think that when you actually examine the Old Testament scriptures, you'll see that Matthew's actually being very careful in what he's communicating and that what he's saying is actually really profound. And if you actually go look at the original context of those passages, that Matthew's only quoting a small portion, but the greater context communicates even more to Matthew's overall message. And so that's why I'm wanting to do this, because if you actually go look at the original passages, you can learn a lot more about the message that Matthew's communicating through citing them. And so let's look at that fourth prophecy, uh, which comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. And just to remind you of the context here, uh, Jesus and his family escape to Egypt because Herod is wanting to kill him. Uh, but Herod doesn't know that Jesus escapes. And by the end of the story, it seems like Herod thinks that he has successfully killed the Messiah. But what he ends up doing is he sets in motion this series of events wherein he has all the male children, two years old and younger, in the region of Bethlehem and the surrounding area, brutally murdered. And Matthew says in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, that then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she was refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Right, so Matthew cites Herod's infanticide as a fulfillment of prophecy. And so what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to look at the text of Jeremiah chapter 31 and let's see if the context of Jeremiah 31 supports Matthew's claim here. And I think not only does it support it, but it actually advances his ultimate argument about what Jesus is doing and what Jesus has come to do. And so Jeremiah chapter 31, just for some context, uh, Jeremiah was a prophet who was writing around the time period whenever the people of Judah were being sent off into captivity in Babylon. And where we find ourselves currently in the book in chapter 30, uh, he was writing to the people and he basically told them that as punishment for their sins, they're going to be taken off into exile, into Babylon, but ultimately God is not going to abandon them and he will ultimately restore them. Maybe not in their generation, but sometime in the future, God will bring them back and restore them in the land and he's not going to abandon his promises. And so whenever we get to Jeremiah chapter 31, you have to realize that this is actually a very positive chapter and it's not nearly as depressing as you might at first think uh, because the one verse that Matthew cited is literally the most depressing verse in the entire chapter, uh, which is fittingly so, right? I mean, it's talking about children dying, but the surrounding verses are actually very positive. And so you have to realize that this negative event takes place in the midst of something extremely positive. It is the promise of the exiles coming back from their exile. And so we're going to read through this. I'm going to read a pretty big chunk of this. Uh, but one thing I want to highlight is that if you're actually looking at the screen right here, you'll see that as I go through this, there are certain words that I've highlighted in blue. And those words are just terms that might invoke in your mind the same imagery that we see in the Gospel of Matthew, right? He's going to refer to Israel as a virgin, right? There was emphasis on the fact that Mary was also a virgin, right? And so there's these different language points that you're going to see in Jeremiah 31 that are very similar to stuff that Matthew um, alludes to. And I think that this is something that the original Jewish audience would have probably picked up on. And so let me read through this. At that time declares Yahweh, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. 
Thus says Yahweh, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its relief, so the people who weren't killed during the process of being exiled, those people are going to go off into exile and they will find relief. And the relief is going to be that they call upon the name of God. Yahweh appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you and you will be rebuilt. O virgin of Israel. Right? So Israel was playing the harlot and playing the whore, but God calls her a virgin because he's going to rebuild her and make her new. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of those celebrating. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters will plant and will enjoy them. For there will be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim call out, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to Yahweh our God. For thus says Yahweh, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the head of the nations. Make it heard, give praise, and say, O Yahweh, save your people, the remnant of Israel. So you see what the people of Israel are crying out? O Yahweh, save our people. Do you remember what the name Jesus means? Yahweh is salvation. The people are crying out for Yahweh's salvation, and that's exactly what they're going to get when Jesus shows up. But that's kind of stepping ahead. Let's just read it. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and she who is in labor with child together. A great assembly, they will return here. And so God says, if you can imagine in your head, he is going to go into all the surrounding nations and bring all the people, all the exiles back from their captivity, back from their exile. And there's even the image of a woman with child, right? A woman who was in labor and who now has a child coming back from captivity. With weeping they will come, and by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Right? So he's going to bring the people back, and they're going to be repentant. They're going to be made new. They're going to actually long to live for him. Hear the word of Yahweh, O nations, and declare in the coastlands far away, and say, He who dispersed Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. So God will be as a shepherd to his people. For Yahweh has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. They will come and sing for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the goodness of Yahweh, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd, and their soul will be watered garden, will be a watered like a watered garden, and they will never waste away again. So God promises he's going to bring his people back from exile because he's heard their pain and he, didn't, and he doesn't want them to ever have to go through this again. Then the virgin, hey, there's that word again. Then the virgin will be glad in the dance and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them gladness for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priest with richness and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares Yahweh. Right, So all of this is in the context of the people returning from their exile. And this right here is where we get the part that Matthew quotes. Thus says Yahweh. A voice is heard in Ramah, wailing and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So in light of all of the promises of future hope and restoration, you have to realize that in the context that Jeremiah is living in, that restoration has not come. They have not even gone into captivity yet. They're preparing for the dark that's going to come before the dawn, right? Restoration is in the future. That remnant will be saved. But right now, where Jeremiah is found in, in his historical context, is that the people are about to face the worst of the worst. There's going to be a siege. People are going to be killed. Children are going to die. And therefore, this voice is heard in Ramah, wailing and bitter weeping. And Rachel, the matriarch of Israel, she is crying from her grave. Remember that Rachel was buried in the region of Bethlehem. Rachel is weeping for her children. It's like even death cannot keep her from weeping on behalf of her descendants. And she refuses to be comforted because her children are no more. She hears the sounds of innocent children dying because of the sins of their parents. And as the people go off into exile, Rachel refuses to be comforted. But thus says Yahweh, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares Yahweh, and they will return from the land of the enemy. So God himself speaks to Rachel as she weeps and says, Rachel, stop crying. I know it looks bad now, 
but your people will be restored and your children will have new life again, right? Yes, right now it looks bad. And yes, Israel is at the height of its rebellion. But even though they're going to be disciplined for what they've done, God is not going to abandon them and he will wipe away the tears from Rachel's eyes. And there is hope for your future, declares Yahweh, and your children will return to their own territory. I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained calf. Cause me to return that I may return, for you are Yahweh my God. So basically, Israel is crying out, saying, God, we've learned our lesson. We want to repent. We want to come back to you. Bring us back. For after I turned away, I repented, and after I was instructed, I slapped my thigh. I was ashamed and also dishonored because I bore the reproach of my youth. So Israel, as a young child, is being a stupid child, but he's learned his lesson in his exile, and he's crying out to God, saying, God, please forgive me. Bring me back home. Like the prodigal son being called back, so Israel wants to be called back. And this is how God responds. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my inmost being yearns for him. I will surely have compassion on him, declares Yahweh. Right? So God says, yes, Israel has rebelled against me, but I'm going to show compassion because I love them. This is my dear child. And even though they rebel, I can't give them up because I love them so dearly. And I'm going to stop reading there. But if you were to continue reading through this chapter, what you'll see is that not only is God planning on bringing the people back, but once he brings them back, he's going to establish a new covenant with them where he writes his very law on their hearts. And that's all found in Jeremiah chapter 31. That all being said, let's recap what we've read so far. The original context. Around 589 BC, three years before the people of Judah go off into captivity, Jeremiah prophesied that in the last days, that's at the end of chapter 30, Yahweh would preserve a remnant by which to restore his people. Not just Judah, but also Ephraim, my firstborn. Whenever it referenced Ephraim, it's referring to the northern kingdom of Israel. So the southern kingdom of Judah is the one that's about to be exiled, but really it's both kingdoms that are ultimately going to be restored in this promise that God is making. So yes, Judah is going into captivity, but God has a plan for all his people, and he's going to bring them all back to the land. He is going to preserve a remnant, make them faithful, and bring them back to the land. Jeremiah calls the nations to hear Yahweh's promise. Though he disperses his people now, he will gather them once more and restore their joy. In the meantime, Yahweh hears Rachel crying for her children and promises to dry her tears, but only after Israel has repented and returned to him. This is the crucial, 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 crucial element, right? Because this is the thing that Matthew cites, right? Everything else in Jeremiah 31 is extremely positive, but the one verse that Matthew highlights is the present state of Israel in the rebellion with Rachel weeping for her children because they have been living in opposition to God, right? Innocent children are dying because of Israel's rebellion. But all of that is paving the way for Israel to ultimately come to repentance and ultimately receive this new covenant, right? That is what this is about, right? So you can see the parallels that Matthew is beginning to draw here because at the time period of Jeremiah, Israel was in rebellion. Rachel was weeping. Children were dying. But God said the tears are going to be wiped away and eventually Israel will repent. And when they repent, God will restore them. And when they are restored, he will establish a new covenant. But first, Israel has to repent of their rebellion and Rachel needs to stop weeping. In those days, he promises to bring Israel and Judah home in order to bless them, that he might make a new covenant with them. His law will be on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's what we read at the very end of chapter 31, uh, even though I didn't just read that for us just now. And so that's the original context of Jeremiah chapter 31. And before we actually look at what Matthew is doing with this, we just have to ask the question, is it messianic? This is something that I've been trying to ask with all these prophecies. And I'm just going to say right off the bat, the passage isn't overtly messianic. Uh, it seems to be specifically speaking about what was going on with Jeremiah in his context, right? It speaks of Rachel's sorrow as her people die and the rest go into exile, right? Some were being killed by the sword and those who weren't killed by the sword went off into exile where ultimately they would receive rest and hopefully be brought to repentance and be restored into the land, which did eventually happen in that historical reality. And so it speaks of captives being assembled and ultimately going off into exile. And sure enough, whenever you go to chapter 40 of Jeremiah, you see that the place where the captives went before they went to exile was 
Ramah, right? This is where they were gathered together to go into captivity in Babylon. And so it seems like that the passage that Matthew's quoting isn't an overtly messianic passage. It's not like the same thing as like whenever you go to Isaiah chapter 11 or Isaiah chapter 9 and it says like, you know, a shoot shall come from the root of Jesse or whenever it talks about a child being born to us. Those are overtly messianic or whenever it talks about a king coming from Bethlehem. Those are overtly messianic. This one isn't overtly messianic, but that doesn't mean that Matthew's wrong and how he's citing the fulfillment of it, right? Because it's just really a matter of how he's using the word fulfillment. If we're strictly reducing it to the Bible saying the Messiah will do this, well, there's not really any passages like that in the Old Testament. Instead, we have to wrestle through the broader context and figure out whether or not Matthew is being faithful to the original context, and I think he is. So it isn't overtly messianic, but at the same time, it anticipates that Rachel's tears won't be wiped away until Israel and Judah are brought home and a new covenant is established. So while it isn't messianic, it does await future fulfillment because Rachel is weeping at the time period of Jeremiah, and it says that the re that the weeping won't stop until she comes back home from captivity. And ultimately, Judah does come home from captivity, but there's still other aspects of it that haven't been fulfilled. We've never seen a moment where Israel came back from captivity, whereas the prophecy was about both coming back. This is where you hear people talking about the lost 10 tribes of Israel and stuff. What happened to them? right? Where are they? They have not come back yet, right? The people of Judah came back from captivity, but there's also other elements that haven't been fulfilled, right? Where was the new covenant uh, during Jeremiah's time? It didn't happen, right? Even whenever you have the post-exilic prophets and the post-exilic people coming back, there's no new covenant immediately established. And so it seems like even though the people have physically come back from their exile, there does still seem to be an ongoing exile of the heart because the fulfillment of Jeremiah's words has not fully come about. And so there is still future fulfillment. And in the meantime, Rachel is still weeping. And so maybe Matthew is suggesting that this event right here is the thing that sets in motion Rachel's weeping coming to an end. Also, there are many parallels with Matthew's narrative here um, that we just have to notice, right? I highlighted them in blue. Returning exiles are described as a virgin and Yahweh's firstborn son, and the exile ultimately produces salvation for Israel, right? And that's what people are crying out for. Yahweh, save us, right? It's the same words that are ultimately um, combined to produce the name Jesus, right? And so it's not overtly messianic, but at the same time, it is awaiting future fulfillment. So let's look at Matthew's context now. Upon seeing the Magi not returning, King Herod orders that all the male children in Bethlehem and its nearby vicinity from two years older and under be killed, right? That is what he says to do, and Matthew cites this uh, as a fulfillment of the prophetic word Jeremiah. And then after Herod dies, Joseph brings his family back into Israel where they will go and live in a Galilean town called Nazareth, right? So that's just the context in the Gospel of Matthew. And really, we have to respond to this and figure out what is Matthew communicating here? Whenever Matthew goes back to Jeremiah chapter 31, is he saying that somehow that passage is about Herod instructing all these children to be killed? Because I don't know if anybody would immediately think that, right? I don't think anybody would go look at Jeremiah 31 and be like, ooh, it seems like that's talking about a evil king saying that a bunch of babies should be killed. I don't know if anybody would look at that that way. Instead, it seems like Matthew understands the broader context of Jeremiah 31, and he's making multiple, many layered points through his citing of this one single verse. He goes out of his way to cite the most depressing verse of the entire chapter, but keep in mind that that one depressing verse is summarizing the context in Jeremiah's day, and it paves the way for all the future hope to come. So, how Matthew used this prophecy, this is what I'm going to argue. First off, just as Rachel wept for her children uh, at the time of Jeremiah, so too she weeps for the children of Jesus' day, both as a result of Israel's hard-heartedness and rebellion. So, really, it's more, they're typological, right? What we see happening during Jesus' day is almost a copy and paste version of what was happening during Jeremiah's day. Rachel is weeping for the death of innocent children because of Israel's hard-heartedness. Originally, but like this is even advanced further, right? Because originally, it was Babylonians coming in and ultimately bringing about the death of the innocent children. And it was people under siege who were bringing about the death of innocent children. Whereas now, it's King Herod himself enacting all this, right? So Rachel's weeping even more. So in both cases, innocent children suffer and die because of the sins of their father. In both cases, Israel is forced to leave the land, right? Because we have 
uh, the original people of Judah leaving the land and going off into exile in Babylon. And then you have Jesus, Mary, and Joseph who represent Israel in a way. They also are having to go into exile as a result of what is happening right here. And so if you just look at it from this perspective, Jesus fulfills the prophecy by living out Israel's history yet without sin. Israel and Judah were ultimately exiled because of their own hard-heartedness and rebellion. Jesus was exiled not because of his hard-heartedness and rebellion, but because of Israel's hard-heartedness and rebellion, right? King Herod is the king of Israel. Kings always represent the people themselves, right? And so King Herod represents the rebellion of Israel. We've talked about this in past videos. Israel has in many ways become the new Egypt, right? King Herod is much like the new Pharaoh from the Exodus story. And so Israel has become a hot place of rebellion and hard-heartedness and idolatry against God, even though they think they're being faithful. And so Jesus, as the true Israel, is exiled on Israel's behalf. So even as he goes into Egypt as a little child, he is bearing their sins, right? He's the one going off into exile while they actually remain in the land. But then I think Matthew does something even beyond this. At the same time, Rachel's tears will be wiped away and she will weep no more. As I've highlighted, the verse that Matthew cites is the most depressing verse in the entire chapter. And everything around it is painting a picture of the future hope that is awaiting the remnant that doesn't die in their captivity, right? And so yes, this is super depressing, but it's surrounded by hope. A present depressing reality surrounded by a future bright hope the dark before the dawn. I think that's what Matthew's communicating. This thing right here is a horrendous event where a bunch of innocent babies are being killed at the birth of Jesus, but it's the dark before the dawn because this is paving the way for Jesus to come in and wipe away Rachel's tears. The virgin and son may be exiled from the land, but this exile is purposed for the salvation, not just for Israel, but for the nations, right? The people were crying out, Yahweh save us. And God says, you shall name him Jesus for he shall save people from their sins, right? He is here to bring them back from their exile, but not just an exile in Babylon, an exile from God, an exile in their sin. That's what Jesus is coming to do. Jesus is exiled in order that he might return to bring exiled Israel back home and to establish a new covenant. Because yes, the people of Judah might have returned from Babylon, but there's still more repentance that needs to take place. And we see that through Herod's hard-heartedness. He is the one who is enacting all of this. And so we get to see that Israel itself is a place that is still in exile, even if they don't appear to be physically. Spiritually, they are hard-hearted against God and they need to be brought to repentance. Jesus is the fulfillment of that, right? He is the one who is fulfilling Rachel's weeping. Because when Rachel's weeping has been fulfilled, we know that the tears are going to be wiped away the people are going to repent, and ultimately, everything's going to be restored, and a new covenant's going to be established. I don't think it should be a shocker for us whenever we flip to Matthew chapter 3, immediately following this, and we have John the Baptist showing up on the scene saying, what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus shows up and says, what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's calling the people to repent because he's preparing them for this new covenant between God and man, for this new covenant kingdom, right? And so I think that's what Matthew is trying to communicate in this passage right here. And I think that's beautiful, right? That's why we need to study the Old Testament prophets, because if you just look at the one verse, you'll be like, oh, cool, that's about the Messiah. But if you actually go look at the original context, you'll see it might not originally have been interpreted as the about, it might have not originally been interpreted as being about the Messiah, but it's actually even more beautiful in its broader context. So I think that's what Matthew's communicating there. And so there is that prophecy. Now we actually have to tackle the much harder prophecy, which is prophecy number five, Jesus being called a Nazarene. And you'll notice here on this slide that I did not cite any particular verse reference here. And that's because this is a difficult doozy to work through. And we're going to work through it here and hopefully I'll be able to shed light on it. Um, but this is a difficult one. And so after Jesus and his parents come back from Egypt, uh, it says that uh, that Joseph was afraid to go live in the region of Bethlehem and everything because um, Herod's son Archelaus was in charge. And so God tells him to go live in the region of Galilee. And right here we read, but he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the district of Galilee and he came and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. 
he shall be called a Nazarene. The difficult thing about this is that unlike all the other ones we've talked about so far, there's not a single place in the Old Testament where you can look and you can copy and paste these words and find them there, right? There is a place where it says, there is weeping heard in Ramah. There is a place that says that a king shall be born in Bethlehem. There is a place that says a virgin shall give birth. So you can go look at that and you can find that. There's never a single place where it says he shall be called Nazarene. And so you have to wrestle through this. We're only two chapters in. Is Matthew just making up scriptures? I don't think so. And I think what we need to do is let's compare what Matthew says here to the things that he said about the other ones. I only quoted three of the other things, uh, three of the other prophecies, and that's because you'll have to remember that the prophecy about the Messiah being born of a virgin, I, I mean, being born in Bethlehem, that was not cited by Matthew technically. That was cited by the scribes and priests in Herod's court. Uh, but the... Technically, there's four prophecies that Matthew himself cites. He cites Jesus being born of a virgin, being delivered from Egypt, and the weeping in Ramah, as well as Jesus being called a Nazarene. And he seems to have a typical way of saying these things, right? And I've kind of color-coded it here uh, so you can kind of see the common denominators, right? So you have that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. That what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, right? That's the first three of them. But you look at the fourth one, notice what it says. That what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. Do you see the difference? Right? The first three, Matthew seems to have one particular prophet in mind. Right? He says, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child. Well, he's talking about Isaiah. Right? You can clearly go look at Isaiah and say, ah, that's where it was spoken. That what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Oh, that's Hosea right? That's exactly where that would be found, right? If you're a Jewish reader, you know this. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet would be fulfilled saying a voice was heard in Ramah. So Matthew literally cites that this is Jeremiah who's talking right here. But whenever he gets to that fourth one, he doesn't say one particular prophet said it. He says that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. It's plural. And so there's two things we can note here. First off, it isn't attributed to one prophet but multiple prophets. In Greek, the first three occurrences say two prophetu, right? That is the singular version of prophets, right? Uh, but the fourth one, it says it's ton propheton, it's plural, right? And so Matthew doesn't seem to have in mind just one prophet referencing this. Instead, he's saying that multiple prophets communicate this about the Messiah. The Messiah will be born a Nazarene. And then there's another thing I want to highlight, and this is something that's common throughout all of them, it doesn't necessarily say that this had to be written by the prophets or had to be written by a prophet. Instead, he uses the word spoken, right? That what was spoken to the prophets would be fulfilled. Well, that's also a pretty important distinction because that means whenever he's communicating this, it doesn't have to be something that's explicitly written down. It just has to be something that was taught by the prophets, right? And so as people wrestle through this, it seems like Matthew isn't necessarily saying that there is a quotation in the Old Testament that says Jesus shall be called a Nazarene. Instead, it seems like it's suggesting that this is a broader theology about the Messiah that is communicated through the prophets, whether it be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Like no matter what, he's saying that if you look at all the prophets or some of the prophets or just the prophets in general, they communicate that the Messiah will be a Nazarene. And so your immediate question might be, okay, well, does the word Nazareth show up in the Old Testament? And the answer is no. Okay, well, does the word Nazarene show up in the Old Testament? And the answer is, again, no. And so now you're really confused because you're saying, okay, well, Matthew says that multiple prophets are saying this, but we can't even find one prophet who says it. So what is Matthew doing here? And there's three theories that I'm going to present. The first one, is that Matthew could just be making a pun right here, and it has to do primarily with what it means to be a Nazarene. So we might actually have to look back at the Hebrew word Nazarene, see what it means, and see if that is being communicated by the prophets about the Messiah. And then a second theory that people will propose is that this is actually a social commentary having to do with the reputation of Nazareth at the time period of Jesus, right? So maybe it's not about the word itself. Maybe it's just about the town itself and what Nazareth was known as being at the time period of Jesus and whether or not the reputation that Nazareth had with it was something that was communicated about the Messiah's reputation in the Old Testament prophets, right? So those are the two primary theories. And then you have a third theory, which is probably the one I hold to, and that it's both, 
right? Maybe that Matthew's actually communicating something super intense and broad right here, where he's actually taking the word and the town itself and noticing the common denominator between these, he mashes them together and says, that is a picture-perfect version of a picture-perfect portrait of the Messiah. I think that's what Matthew's doing here. And so I want to defend that. And so we're going to walk through the first two theories uh, and I'm going to give you my thoughts on here and I'm going to give you different suggestions, different ideas of what other scholars and other just very smart people, much smarter than myself have proposed. Uh, and then I'll give you some conclusions that I think Matthew is trying to communicate. So theory number one, it's a pun having to do with what it means to be a Nazarene. Well, in order for us to understand this theory, we have to figure out what the word Nazarene means. So in English, we have the word Nazarene, but if you go back to the New Testament's original language in Greek, this is the word Nazoraios. Uh, but guess what? Jesus was living in Israel and the word Nazarios doesn't really mean anything in Greek. It would have ultimately come from the Hebrew word Nazirei, right? And that's the word we've got to focus on here, right? And so if you were to go to a Hebrew New Testament, that's the word that you would find whenever it refers to a Nazarene. Obviously the New Testament was originally written in Greek, but uh, living in the land of Israel, the Hebrew word is the one that we're really wanting to focus on because that's what the town would have been named after, right? Natsiri. Well, what does the word Natsiri mean? Ultimately, people have suggested two things. It can come from one of two words. It could come from the word Nasir, uh, which means consecrated, devoted, or holy one. Uh, but more likely, it comes from the word Netzer, right? Which means sprout, shoot, or branch. Um, the word not seer right there, the first one, uh, this is if you've ever read the Old Testament and you've read about Nazarites, that is what this word is. It's the word not seer. We just translated it as Nazarite. And so Nazarites were people who were specifically set apart as holy ones. That's what the word means. It just means to be a holy one. And they were set apart by making a specific oath to God where they had certain things they could and couldn't do, right? So they were not allowed to drink alcohol. They were not allowed to cut their hair. They were not allowed to touch a dead body. That's what it meant to be a Nazarite. But the word Nasir, it just means holy, right? And so on one side, uh, Matthew could be suggesting that Jesus was a Nazarite, but nobody really suggests that uh, because we have nothing in Matthew's gospel that would suggest to us that Jesus never cut his hair or never touched a dead body or never drank alcohol. In fact, I would actually probably argue against almost each and every one of those, uh, specifically because we know that he did touch dead bodies because uh, he resurrected them. And we also know that he did drink alcohol, right? And so... Nobody really would claim that Jesus was a Nazarite in the Old Testament sense, but the word Nasir just means holy one. And so some people have suggested that maybe that's what it's suggesting, that the Messiah would be called a holy one. And sure enough, I mean, yeah, I mean, the word holy just means to be set apart and consecrated. Of course, the Messiah is a holy one set apart for the things of God. But you'll notice if you just compare them, you don't have to know Hebrew to notice this. You'll notice that they're spelt different, right? Um, and even in English, the transliteration is a little bit different to where it'd be a Z, whereas technically uh, in Hebrew, the word um, Nazari, which is Nazarene, it would be a T-S, Nazi, Nazari, right? Not Nazi. Um, and it's spelled differently, right? So more likely the word Nazari or Nazarene, it comes from the word Netzer. Uh, which, like I mentioned before, is the word for sprout or shoot or branch, right? Uh, usually you'll see it translated as shoot because there's other words for sprout and branch in the Old Testament. Uh, but that, to me, seems like the more convincing argument. But I wouldn't put it past Matthew to have both of these in mind because guess what? He's writing in Greek, and in Greek, you would probably transliterate both of these as the same thing. Because guess what? Greek does not have a language, like, does not have a letter for tss. Just like in English, we don't have that. And so it would just be a Z, right? And so it's very possible that Matthew has both of these in mind, but we don't know, right? Ultimately, we're just trying to guess at what Matthew's trying to communicate here. And what we see is that there's actually a lot of possibilities, all of which are consistent with the Old Testament portrait of the Messiah. But I want to specifically look at the word Netzer because it seems like this is the more likely one that he has in mind. So let's talk about Netzer. This word actually does show up in a very, 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 very important messianic prophecy. This is what we read in Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The word for branch there is netzer, right? So then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse and a netzer from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and the 
of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. Also righteousness will be the belt around his loins, and faithfulness the belt around his waist. So right here, we have Isaiah referring to the Messiah. It's very clear that he's talking about the Messiah right here. There's going to be this future royal descendant of David who's going to show up and reign in righteousness and truth, and he's going to do amazing things. He's not going to judge by what his eyes see or by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He's going to know the very hearts of men. He's going to judge in righteousness, which is really cool if you go back to Samuel and it says that man, God does not do things as, God does not see as man thinks, God does not see as man sees, Man looks to the outward appearance, God looks to the heart. Well, the Messiah, he's not going to judge by what he sees. He's going to judge in righteousness. He's going to judge according to the standard of God. And the language that Isaiah uses to identify this Messiah figure is netzer, right? He is a shoot from the stem of Jesse. He is a branch from his roots. He is a netzer from the roots. The imagery of this is that uh, Jesse was the father of David right? David was the king. And so whenever you're talking about the stem of Jesse, it's the idea that Je David's royal line has been cut down into nothing but a little stump, right? Like you had this amazing tree that produced all these children, but it's going to look like the house of David has been cut down to the bare minimum. It's nothing but a stump of Jesse. But then from that dead stump, will come a shoot that will come there will be a branch that comes from the roots right a tiny little branch will come from it will come from the stump of jesse it looks like it's dead but there will be this last little semblance of life that will grow forth from this dead stump and that little branch he will be the messiah right so the imagery that isaiah is painting here is that the house of david will look like it's died off but it won't have died off and out of nowhere, out of obscurity, this tiny little branch will grow and he is going to be the Messiah who reigns in righteousness. This is why the people of Israel were yearning so much for the Messiah at the time period of Jesus, right? Because for 400 years, God had been silent. For a little bit longer than that, they had been back in the land of Israel after their exile. But guess what? There was no king sitting on the throne of Israel. King Herod, he was called king, but he was not a king from the line of David. He was placed there by the Romans, and he wasn't even really a legitimate king, right? There was no king from the line of David. It looked like the house of David had kind of died off, the royal line. Where'd it go? But now, out of obscurity, this little stump, this little shoot, this little branch, this netzer is rising up. And interestingly enough, as you go throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see that the word branch is a very, very common word used to designate the Messiah. However, I will admit that this is the only place where it's the Hebrew word netzer that is employed to describe the Messiah very clearly. Uh, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, moving forward, you actually have a different word for branch, the word tzemach, that is often used to describe the Messiah as the branch of Yahweh, right? So it's a different Hebrew word in these occurrences, but we see that the imagery of the Messiah being a branch is one that is picked up by a lot of the prophets, right? Isaiah chapter 4. In that day, the branch, the tzemach of Yahweh, will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the honor of those of those of Israel who escape. Jeremiah chapter 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, tzemach, and he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah chapter 33, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch, tzemach, of David to branch, tzemach, forth, and he shall do justice and righteousness on the earth. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8, now listen Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, interestingly the word name Joshua is the same as the name Jesus, indeed they are men who are a wondrous sign, for behold I am going to bring in my servant the branch, Tzemach, so the servant of Yahweh, the Messiah is identified as the branch. Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12, then you will say to him, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, Tzemach, and he will branch out, Tzemach, from where he is, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Right? So, throughout the Old Testament, you have the Messiah being called the Branch. And, yes, it's a different word, but 
it's the same idea. It's the same imagery, right? It's the idea of this tiny little branch. He's not being called the trunk of the tree. He's a branch that comes off the tree, right? And Isaiah himself calls him a netzer. He is the tiny little branch, the tiny little shoot that comes from the stem, the stump of Jesse. And so I think that in the Old Testament, we already have the idea that the Messiah is a branch. And if you look at the town Nazareth, it seems like the name literally means the town of the branch, right? He is a Nazarene. He is a branchian, right? The town of Nazareth is the branch town, right? That's what it means. But then this goes beyond just the Old Testament. By the time you get to the intertestamental time period, which is the time period between the Old and the New Testament, we have evidence of the word netzer being used in reference to the Messiah. And this is the really cool thing. Because yes, Isaiah chapter 11 might be the only place where the Messiah is specifically identified as a netzer. And in all those other places, he might be called it tzemach, right? The other word for branch. But whenever you get to the intertestamental time period, you have occurrences of the word netzer being used to describe the Messiah. And so during the Old Test the intertestamental time period, it seems like people were looking at the Old Testament and they said, ah, he's a Netzer. And they started referring to the Messiah as that very thing, which is really cool because guess what? Matthew was raised in this culture. He was raised in the intertestamental time period when people would have been using this language to describe the Messiah. And so it seems like this is probably what he had in mind. What I'm going to quote here, I'm going to quote three different instances where the word Netzer shows up describing the Messiah. And this comes from the Horayot, which are just Thanksgiving Psalms and Thanksgiving prayers uh, to God. And the really cool thing about these is that most scholars would date these prayers to the Herodian period. And when I say Herodian period, I'm talking about the period of Herod the Great, right? So this is between around 30 to 1 BC. This is around the time period that Jesus is being born, that these prayers are being written and they refer to the Messiah as a netzer. This is really cool. So I've only quoted little portions of this, so the sentences won't be complete. And we also don't have the complete fragments of this. We only have just tiny portions. And so there's gonna be places where it kind of breaks off, but I wanted to include this in here because I think it's very fascinating. So the person's praying and says, according to the spirit for dot, 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 and they repent because of your glory's command, talking to God, so that they become your princes in the eternal uh, lot and their shoot opens as a flower blooms everlasting fragrance making a netzer a sprout grow into the branches of an eternal planting right so this person is praying that the messiah will show up who will eventually produce this amazing branch right so he will be a shoot that produces all these branches and ultimately establishes the kingdom of god and this netzer this sprout will cast shade over all the world and its branches will reach to the clouds and its roots as far as the deep all the rivers of eden make its branches moist and it will extend to the measureless seas right so once again it's kind of hard to make sense of all this because we only have fragments here but the person seems to be praying asking god to send his netzer his messiah to ultimately show up and reign not over only israel but over everybody the shade will be over the whole world so he will start out as a tiny little branch as a tiny little shoot that comes from the stump of jesse but eventually his shade will cast like over the whole world, right? So this is not just the Messiah over Israel. He's the Messiah over all the nations, which is really cool. Because once again, this is not biblical stuff, but these are Jewish people during the intertestamental time period voicing their messianic hope. They are praying for the Messiah to show up and they call him a netzer. If you move a little bit further on into column 15 of this same prayer book, this is what we read. And you yourself know the intention of your servant that not dot 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 is his support so as to exalt his heart right? And seek security and strength. There is no refuge in flesh for dot, 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 no righteous deeds that it could be delivered from dot, 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 except by forgiveness. But as for me, I rely upon your, this is talking to God, I rely on your great compassion and upon your overflowing kindness. I wait in order to bloom like a plant and in order to make a netzer grow, to find security in your strength and to Dot, dot, dot. For by your righteousness, you have stationed me in your covenant and I have held fast to your truth and I dot, dot, dot. And you have made me a father to the children of kindness. So once again, it's hard to figure out exactly what's being communicated here because there's so many breaks, but this person seems to be thanking God for the ultimate hope that is found in the arrival of 
the Messiah. He's voicing the idea that a netsayer will grow, and when that netsayer shows up, when this shoot shows up, they will find security in God's strength, and he will station this person in righteousness, and this person will rule, just like we saw in the last part. And then you move on to a little bit further on, into column 16 of this same book of prayers and these thanks, same Thanksgiving songs. Uh, we have this show up, and we actually have the word netsayer show up three times in this one little section here. And this is what the person says. They're thanking God. I thank you, O Lord, that you have placed me by the source of streams in a dry land. Right? So it's all nature imagery. Keep that in mind. So I thank you that you have placed me by the source of streams in a dry land, by a spring of water in a thirsty land, and by a watered garden, and a pool, dot, 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 the field, a planting of juniper, an elm with cedar, all together for your glory, trees of life at a secret spring, hidden in the midst of all the trees by the water. And they were there so that a netzer might be made to sprout into an eternal planting, right? So the person is using this imagery, thanking God for planting the people of Israel in the land as if by a stream of water. And the reason they were planted there was not just for themselves. They were planted there so that the netzer could grow up, right? So that the shoot could grow up from the stump of Jesse. Taking root there taking root before they caused it to sprout they sent out their roots to the water of course uh, to the water course but it exposed its rootstock to the living waters which served as an eternal spring all the animals of the forest pastured upon its leafy netzer its rootstock was by was a grazing place for all who passed by on the way and its foliage was for every winged bird and all the trees by the water towered over it for in their plantation they grow tall, but they do not send out roots to the watercourse. That which made the holly shoot netzer sprout up into the planting of truth conceals itself without being much regarded and without being recognized, sealing up its mystery. So I'll admit that those last two ones, it's difficult to figure out whether or not this person is referring to the Messiah as a netzer there. Um, he could just be using the same word to continue with the imagery there. But my main point in all of this is not even to suggest that all of these prayers are correct or have a correct theology. I'm just pointing out that we have evidence from the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament where people were calling the Messiah Netzer. He is the shoot. And so even if the word Netzer only shows up one time in the Old Testament as a reference to the Messiah, and that's in Isaiah chapter 11, this was language that was picked up by the people of Jesus' day. And Matthew probably would have been aware of this. And he might have been aware of these very prayers as well as other ones that people had voiced at this time period where they were calling the Messiah a Natser and they would have gotten that from the Old Testament prophets. But I think we can go even beyond this and let's look at theory number two. Because maybe Matthew's not just talking about the play on words there, that he would literally be called a Natser, but maybe that Matthew's actually making social commentary having to do with the reputation of Nazareth itself. And so we have to ask, what did people think about the city of Nazareth at this time period? And we can say a few things about this. First off, those in Judea looked down upon those from Galilee, uh, and Nazareth was in Galilee. Uh, we actually have um, a bunch of places in the Talmud and in the Midrash where people in Judea, which is the southern region of Israel, they just looked down on the people of the north, um, mainly because they were just farmers and fishermen and stuff, and the people down south were viewed more as like the scholarly and the more religious type people. Uh, and so we have a lot of evidence of them looking down on the Gal Galileans and being like, oh, those guys don't know anything. Um, they're just hillbillies, basically. That's kind of how the that's kind of how Judeans viewed that. And I'm not saying that's a correct interpretation of that. Um, I'm not saying that's a correct mindset to have. I think it's actually very wrong and prejudiced, but that's kind of the mentality of the land of Israel for a long time period. Uh, and so Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who has some amazing resources about just Jewish context and stuff, this is what he said, um, just basically summarizing the mentality of the people in Judea in the southern region of Israel to the people of Galilee. The Jews of Judea disdained Galilee. Galileans were considered materialistic and ignorant in spiritual matters. If one was only interested in getting rich, then he should go north to Galilee. Anyone interested in obtaining divine spiritual wisdom should go south, because that was where the rabbinic schools and the rabbinic academies were located. Right. So the idea is that the people of Israel didn't really value riches as much as they valued other things. And so if you wanted to get rich and if you were just a materialistic person, go move to Galilee. You'll have lush land. You can be a farmer. You can be a fisherman. You can own a vineyard. You can do all that stuff and you can make some good money. But if you want true spiritual wisdom and if you want to be of the elite, elite righteous people, 
come live in Judea. And so the people of Judea kind of looked down on the people of Galilee. On the flip side, people of Galilee kind of looked down on the people of Judea as well. But keep in mind that the people of Judea are the ones who more likely established the religious mentality of that time period. And so just by being, just by living in the region of Galilee, Jesus would have kind of been bringing upon himself a certain amount of disdain. But then, even amongst those living in Galilee, we have evidence that those people looked down upon those people from Nazareth. Uh, and we actually have this inside the Gospels. If you go to John chapter 1, the very first chapter of the fourth Gospel, uh, this is what we read about Philip, one of Jesus' apostles, whenever he went and tried to recruit another apostle, uh, Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. So just in that response right there, we see that people did not have a very high opinion of Nazareth. They're like, uh, Nazareth? Because at the time period of Jesus, Nazareth was just a tiny little town. I mean, if you go there today, it's a sprawling city. But that's because a guy named Jesus grew up there, right? At the time of Jesus, this was an, like there, there was basically anybody living there. It was just a hole-in-the-wall town on the side of a hill. It was not an impressive city, right? And so even the people living in Galilee, they're like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Nathaniel's so confused because Philip is saying, hey, I found the Messiah, the one of whom Moses and the, and the law and the prophets, they, they talked about. I found the Messiah and he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, are you sure? Because not only did the people of Judea look down upon Galilee, but the people in Galilee looked down upon the people of Nazareth. And so to be a Nazarene was to be despised, rejected, and held of low esteem. So that's what we know about the reputation of being a Nazarene. So now the question becomes, were there prophecies suggesting the Messiah would be despised, rejected, and held of low esteem? And I think that probably if you're watching this, there's one that's immediately jumping into your mind. And the answer is yes, right? Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, right? Once again, it's not the word netzer, but tender shoot. And like a root out of parched ground, the same exact imagery, right? It's the imagery of a shoot growing out of dry ground, right? That we've just been talking about. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. If you keep reading Isaiah chapter 53, it is one of the most amazing prophecies about the Messiah. But guess what it establishes right off the bat? He was a man who was despised, rejected, and held of low esteem. That's exactly in line with the character of the people of Nazareth. But you can go even beyond this, right? He would be born in Bethlehem, Aphratha, which if you go back to Micah chapter 5, it describes it as being too little to be among the clans of Judah. Right? It was a tiny little town, right? So even by being born in Bethlehem, yes, he was being born in the city of David, but it was not a significant town. He wasn't being born in Jerusalem, right? He was being born in little Bethlehem. He would be the netzer from the roots of the stem of Jesse, the last semblance of life in a dead family line. It seemed like the royal line had died, but then he just grows up as a tiny little shoot. If you're growing up as a shoot from a stump, nobody's going to pay attention to that, right? People love going to visit the mighty redwoods of California, right? Because they're so huge. But you know what? I don't know many people who are like, hey, let's go to the park and let's just look for tiny little stems growing from the stump of a dead tree. Nobody looks for that, right? Nobody's watching for stuff like that. And so just by him being a stem or a branch from the roots of Jesse and from the stump of Jesse, just by him being a tender shoot like a root from parched ground, he's not going to be held in high esteem because nobody's going to be looking at him. And so you have all these other prophecies that are shaping your idea of the Messiah as not being a figure who everybody just looks at him. It's like, oh, there's the Messiah. It's the idea that he's not going to be somebody like King Saul or somebody like Absalom, right? Who's tall, dark, and handsome and just beautiful with flowing locks of hair who everybody can't get their eyes off of. Instead, he's going to be much more like David, right? He's going to be a, he's going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, right? The youngest son who grows up as a shepherd. Nobody thinks anything of him until later on in his life, whenever he makes a name for himself and God makes a name for him. 
right? That's what this guy is being portrayed as, right? He's not going to be something flashy and fantastic where everybody looks at him and says, there's a king. Instead, he's going to show up, held of low esteem, despised and rejected by his own people, just like David, but eventually the Spirit of the Lord will bring him into fruition and will show everybody who he is. It was also said that Isaiah chapter 9, a child will be born to us and a son will be given. And guess what? We're going to talk about this in a few weeks. This person would be a light to those who dwell in darkness on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah chapter 9 is a clear messianic prophecy, right? We'll talk about that again in a few weeks, like I said. So we have it in the book of Isaiah that this guy's going to be a netzer. He's going to be held of low esteem, despised and rejected. And we also have it that he's going to be showing up in Galilee. And then we have other prophecies, which also suggest that the Messiah is not going to be held of the highest esteem. And so I think that we have evidence here that, yes, Matthew might also have in mind the character of Nazareth as well. So the city itself. So it could be a play on the words and it could also be just the city itself. And so let's look at Matthew's context once again. Fearing the reign of Herod's son Archelaus and being warned by God, Joseph takes his family to live in the Galilean town of Nazareth. Matthew cites this as fulfilling the testimony of the prophets. Now let's talk about how Matthew uses this prophecy. Because I think it is probably one of the coolest things ever and hopefully you've gotten excited by just seeing how this all works out. Because he's not just quoting one specific prophecy, he's making a commentary on the theology of the Messiah from the Old Testament, right? This is Old Testament Christology, right? What we believe about the Christ. That's what he's commenting on. First off, on one hand, it is possible that Matthew is identifying Jesus as a Nazir, a holy one, set apart unto God, which is consistent with the testimony of the prophets concerning the Messiah. Obviously, if the Messiah is who the prophets say he is, he's going to be holy. He's going to be set apart. He's going to be devoted to God, right? I think that's the least, I think that's the last thing that that Matthew has in mind, um, but it's still possible, right? This is something that could be what Matthew's trying to communicate. But more importantly, on the other hand, it's possible he's identifying Jesus as the netzer of Yahweh, the branch, the shoot of Yahweh, the royal shoot to spring from the stump of Jesse, destined to be fulfilled, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to rule over the nations in righteousness and justice. This is what he is called in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Zechariah, all of those things. Still another option is that he is associating Jesus with being despised and rejected, explaining how he could fulfill so many prophecies and yet still be disregarded by his people. Further, this could be Matthew's way of harmonizing the seemingly conflicting ideas that the Messiah would be both a suffering servant and a conquering king. This is something that even modern day Jews try to wrestle through because there are certain places where the Messiah is presented as a conquering king and there's other places where he's definitely presented as a suffering servant. And some Jewish people will disregard the second one and they'll say, okay, well, maybe that's actually talking about Israel being the suffering servant and the other things are about the king. But then other people, uh, other Jewish people will look at it and they'll say, well, maybe there's two messiahs. There's the Messiah bin David and there's the Messiah bin Joseph, right? So maybe there's the Messiah son of David, Messiah son of Joseph, right? So there's going to be one Messiah who's a conquering king like David. And there's going to be one Messiah who's a suffering servant, kind of like Joseph in the book of Genesis. And that's a theology that some Jewish people will hold to today. There's, the, there's going to be two Messiahs. But maybe this is Matthew's way of reconciling this. Yes, Jesus is the son of David, but he's also the son of Joseph, right? Uh, which ironically, Jesus is the adopted son of a guy named Joseph as well, who is very similar to the Joseph from the Old Testament. And so maybe Matthew is reconciling this by drawing all these things together. He is the promised king who will rule and reign, but he's also despised and rejected. And he comes from Galilee and he comes from Nazareth and he's a shoot from dry ground. It's likely, and this is the thing I'm going to say to conclude this whole video. It's likely that he had many or all of these ideas in mind, which he would, which he could communicate through emphasizing one single word, Nazarene, right? The word Nazarene in and of itself carries so much with it that rather than just citing a bunch of verses, he says, you know what? I can communicate so much about who Jesus is and how he fulfills prophecy and how he is the Messiah by simply saying one word, Nazarene. And for a Jewish reader reading this, they're like, he'd be called Nazarene. Wait a second. He's a holy one. Wait a second. He's the shoot. Wait a second. 
he's despised and rejected, right? Like, like a Jewish person's reading this and Matthew, he's actually saving time, right? Rather than deciding, oh, in fulfillment of what Isaiah said here and what Micah said here and what Zechariah said here, instead of doing all that, he simply says, thus he fulfilled what was promised by the prophets. He would be called a Nazarene. Well, where does it say that? All over. All the prophets are saying that this is who the Messiah will be. He is going to be a holy shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse, who will eventually rule and reign, but first he will be despised and rejected by man of held of low esteem. That, I think, is what Matthew is communicating through that prophecy. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in, and I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.